Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, Ken will wrap up this series on end times theology. And uh, Ken, by God's uh, grace, uh, the end times, the, the end has not come. So <laughs> we're still doing the podcast. So we're still, we, we may be interrupted. I don't know, but we're going <laughs> to. We're going to talk about it. That's right. Well, these are interesting uh, issues and and uh, items of discussion. It's it's constantly on people's minds. Christians like to talk about these things, and they're important. And you've emphasized over and over on the three podcasts that we need to be people that are trained and looking at all the views. And you're going to continue in that vein today. But as you usually do, let's provide. Uh, uh, recap of where we've been and what we can uh, hear today. Yeah, one of the things that's kind of run through our our first three shows is that eschatology is very important. It's important for people who are living now. It was important for people in the past. Undoubtedly, it will be important in the future. But it's also possible, I think, to do eschatology badly. And I'm I'm always an advocate of what will non-Christians think of how we handle these issues? If we set dates and we're wrong, I think we bring scorn uh, on Christianity. I think when we are overly uh, divisive, uh, holding our differences and maybe become divisive, I think that that's also a problem. I like to emphasize truth, unity, and charity. But we've also began looking at some of the differences. Uh, that these major Christian views have. We, we talked a little bit about the apocalyptic literature. Uh, Daniel and Revelation include a lot of symbolism. How do we properly inter interpret these symbolic ideas and images in light of a literal interpretation of Scripture? Uh, we also talked about a, another area of difference. How does the old relate to the new? How does Israel relate to the church? what promises are made to Israel and what then are applied to the church. Uh, that is a second area of uh, difference. Uh, and then the third area, and this is where we'll, uh, the, these will be the issues we'll tackle in this final program. It has to do with the millennium. And there, we, we talked about, there are two types of, of premillennialism. Both of them say Jesus is going to come uh, before the millennium, the second place, excuse me, the second coming will take place, uh, and then there will be a, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. You have two varieties. We'll talk a bit more about them. Uh, then you have post-millennialism that says that rather than the second coming before the millennium, it's Christ's coming is going to come after the millennium. There'll be a, a long period of time possibly a thousand years, where the Great Commission will go out and Christianity will be successful in reaching the world uh, for our Lord. And then Christ will come, a post-millennial uh, perspective. And then the, the kind of uh, maybe the most different one, and maybe the one that lots of evangelicals know the least, is called amillennialism, which says rather than a literal reign of Christ on the earth, the millennium is actually a reference 
to the very long period between Christ's first and second coming. Christ reigns uh, uh, over church history. So those are the four. And uh, Joe, I'd like to just kind of take each of those, talk a little bit about some of their distinctives, identify what I think are the strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, great. Uh, Ken, a question. You introduced the idea in the last podcast of progressive uh, uh, dispensational. I think that's the term. Yes. Is that uh, then part of dispensational premillennialism? I think so. Um, I referenced uh, Talbot School of Theology and uh, Dallas Seminary, which are, and th there are other schools that would fit under the dispensational. Uh, Moody Bible Institute, for example, would be another dispensational school. Uh, dispensationalism uh, is, a, is a common perspective among American evangelicals. And um, uh, Talbot and Dallas uh, have interacted with theologians of other eschatological schools, namely the covenantal view, which is very popular, especially in Reformed, but also in Lutheran and Anglican uh, traditions. And so there have been some refining of that. My One of my teachers, maybe, maybe my most important teacher at uh, at Talbot was Robert Sosi, and uh, he was uh, he was considered a, a specialist in eschatology. I'm going to recommend one of his books a little bit later, but I, I think Dallas as well, Dallas Seminary, uh, very influential uh, school within evangelicalism, uh, and, and even uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, TEDS as we refer to it, has eschatological dispensational ways of thinking. And I think all of those have moved toward a progressive dispensational perspective, which illustrates, I think, a very important point. We can learn from each other. Uh, and I, you know, I think Sosi would have thought that maybe he had something to contribute as well to those who held a more covenantal view. Okay, well, let's start with a historic premillennial view. As a premillennial perspective, it means that uh, the millennium will happen after the coming. Jesus will come before the millennium. There will be a literal reign of Christ of 1,000 years. Uh, what will happen is Christ will return. He defeats the Antichrist. Uh, the devil and his minions are locked away for a 1,000 years. Uh, there is a blissful reign upon the earth, if you will. Uh, then the devil and his forces are freed, and there is a, another rebellion at the end of the millennium. Uh, Christ intervenes and defeats Satan in what we might call a cosmic battle, and this then leads into the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment of humanity, creation, uh, the new heavens and the earth. So um, I think it's fair to say that both in premillennialism, both versions, what we're talking now is historic, but I think it would also include dispensational or progressive dispensational premillennialism. Um, the second coming and the things that happen are an extension of redemption rather mm -hmm. than um, consummation. Now, uh, According to historic premill, um, 
there's no secret rapture of the church. Uh, the rapture and the second coming are the same thing. So the idea is in the ancient world, when the king would leave, when he would come back, people would come out to meet him and usher him back, walk with him back into uh, the land that he reigned over. So a historic premillennialist would be, uh, uh, who would view a, a post-tribulationist view, the rapture, which is where the church is caught up, the believers in the world at the time are caught up in, in the air to meet the Lord, they will usher him in. So historic premillennialism would be post-tribulational, uh, in its in its perspective. Now, um, I want to talk about what I think is maybe its strongest argument. And again, some might differ with me. But I think uh, a critical backing of this perspective uh, is that Revelation 20 may be the most natural reading uh, of a premillennial type of scenario. That is, uh, I think that when we read Revelation 20, there is a tendency to want to see it as being in literal terms. Uh, that, I think, is a strength. Uh, the amillennialists are going to push back on that, but we'll save that for later. I, I also think that um, there is some uh, validity to premillennialism being part of the early church. Now, again, uh, there are disputes about that, uh, but it has it has traditionally been understood that premillennialism was popular very early in church history, and then very late in church history. So uh, some of my premillennial friends will tell you that hey, um, yeah, it's true that during Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin, they were primarily amillennial or postmillennial, but some of the early Christians seemingly were premillennial. Again, some of that's debatable um, because amillennial scholars that I have read recently have said that among the church fathers, you have amillennial interpretation. But, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at, that number one, there is a basis for reading Revelation 20 in a natural sense, which would mean that maybe there is a literal reign of Christ on the earth, and that there were people very early who held that view. That Those two, in my opinion, are two of the strengths. Now, how about the challenge? Um, I argue that the greatest difficulty with this position, uh, both both pre historic premill and dispensational or progressive dispensational premillennialism. Uh, I think the greatest challenge is that another rebellion of evil happens after Christ returns to earth in all of his glory. So some of the amillennial people would say, for example, that uh, Jesus doesn't come the second time the way he came the first time. He doesn't come in... Uh, he, in the sense of being a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. He doesn't come in uh, uh, the idea of suffering and dying uh, in the context of Israel and, and the Roman Empire. He comes with all of his glory. So how is it possible that, um, 
How is it possible that there will be another rebellion? Christ will return in all of his glory. And uh, then after a thousand years of reigning, it's erupted again. Um, now, now, what I think is important there is this idea that the amillennialists say uh, the second coming and everything that happens after it is part of the consummation rather than redemption. Of course, a comeback by the premillennialists might be that, uh, look, the angels rebelled about, against God, and they're aware of God in his glory. So none of these points are necessarily, uh, you know, knockdown winners or knockdown losers. But some people would say, um, nah, it makes a lot more sense to think of uh, the millennium and the second coming in the context of uh, uh, consummation. Now, two good books for a historic premillennial view. Uh, one of them is a real classic. It's entitled The Last Things by George Eldon Ladd, L-A-D-D, George Eldon Ladd. Professor Ladd was kind of an institution uh, of eschatological studies. Uh, he, he taught for a very long time at um, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary that's just up the freeway a bit uh, here from RTB. I've known a number of scholars and pastors who studied under Professor Ladd. Uh, that is a classic premillennial text. And uh, I'm comfortable saying Ladd probably forgot more about eschatology than I'll ever know. Hmm. Uh, it's a it's a must read. And I read it. Uh, I've read it a number of times. A more contemporary, Ladd's been dead a few decades. Another book is A Case for Historic Premillennialism by two scholars, Craig Blomberg. I know Craig and have interacted with him. I quote him in a number of my books. And he has a, a, uh, a co-author, uh, Sun Wook Chung. So again, A Case for Historic Premillennialism by Blomberg and Chung. Uh, that will kind of bring you up to date uh, there. Can I pause a moment or should I go into dispensational premill, Joe? Go ahead. Okay, now we're going to look at another premillennialism. Uh, but according to this perspective, the second coming takes place prior to the millennium. So they're like the historic premillennial view in that way. But And they certainly believe that the uh, reign of Christ will be a thousand years on the earth. But differing with the historic premillennial view, dispensational or progressive dispensational view of eschatology would say that there is a rapture prior to the tribulation. So a pre-trib, premillennial view is recognized in dispensational premillennialism. Maybe another very important difference is that the dispensational schools uh, would talk about uh, the resti restitution of certain temple practices of the Old Testament uh, during the millennium. And of course, this is a, this is a controversial view uh, because part of that amillennial and postmillennial interpretation is that the promises of Israel have become then the promises to the church. So uh, 
the dispensational premillennial view would say that some of this is intended as commemorating the atonement. It, uh, I, and I think that that's a powerful point of that has been brought forth by the progressive dispensationalists. They say, no, not all of them, not all of the temporal sacrifices. That would uh, threaten the finality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But that only some of those would be would foreshadow it. Uh, now, what do I think are the the supporting points of the progressive dispensational premillennial perspective? Well, again, uh, like the historic premill, uh, there's a natural reading of Revelation 20 that I think makes some sense, uh, and uh, they emphasize the idea of how the old and new that you want to bring in the book of Daniel and you want to talk about how the ap apocalyptic literature of the old Testament relates to the apocalyptic literature of the new Testament. So I think those are uh, some of the strengths. Now the challenge, well, again, I think a big challenge for premillennial uh, historic or dispensational is again the idea of uh, it seems like the second coming and everything after it is consummation rather than extended redemption. Of course, you know, my uh, colleague here at Reasons to Believe, I always want to call him my boss because he's been my boss for such a long time, Hugh Ross. Hugh uh, is a premillennialist. He is uh he is an ad outspoken premillennialist. I think that's fair to say. Uh, but I appreciate that RTB, you can hold differing views about secondary issues like the millennium. So he's allowed me to work here. Um, uh, but, you know, Hugh would say, look, um, it shows God's mercy. It shows another way of God's mercy. So again, these challenges or strengths are not necessarily knock down victories or knock down losses. Now, of course, another criticism that would be brought to bear by covenantal people who may be old, uh, who may be post-millennial or particularly amillennial, is they say, got to be careful about these Old Testament sacrifices uh, because they can conflict with the final sufficient complete sacrifice of Christ. So that that that's part of that pushback. Uh, relating to those issues. Again, some of the dispensational, progressive dispensationalists have what I think is a, a modified view. They wouldn't say there are going to be animal sacrifices and comparing them unto Christ's sacrifices. So there would be, there would be differences. Um, now, uh, of course, another issue that I raise here, and, and this came out in my discussions with my old teacher, Dr. Sosi, Dr. Robert Sosi, uh, at Talbot School of Theology. Um, you know, uh, a pushback you could have is that the millennium is only spoken of in one place in scripture, Revelation 20. Why would you, why would you take the chance of building a whole series of theological perspectives on just one passage? Uh, now, I think there's some validity to that, and I'll bring that out when we get to millennialism. But here was Sosi's response. He goes, well, I don't know that you should understand the millennium as merely 
one thing in Revelation 20, he would say there is a lot of a lot of things in the Old Testament that undergird that. So that's going to be uh, the responses. So the strengths, the weaknesses, I don't know that any of them are knockdowns, but there are things to make you think about. They are things to uh, hopefully reflect upon. Couple books. Uh, the first one is my old teacher, The Case for Progressive Dispensationalists. Excuse me, The Case for Progressive Dispensationalism, Robert Sosi. So you want to look carefully at that. Then another book, uh, The End Times in Chronological Order, is by my old friend, Ron Rhodes. When I worked at the Christian Research Institute with Walter Martin, uh, Ron uh, came after I was working there. He was, uh, he was the, the, uh, one of the uh, editors uh, of the Christian Research Journal with Elliot Miller, who was the founding editor. So uh, it's interesting that Ron studied at Dallas Seminary, took both his THM and his uh, uh, doctoral degree in theology there at uh, Dallas Seminary, was a very close friend with Norman Geisler, who was a professor there for some time at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Ron is a very sharp guy, uh, a prolific author, I think. He's written between 70 and 80 books. And I, mm -hmm. I remember Ron, and when I think about him, I remember he would come in at nine o'clock, close the door, and uh, you wouldn't see him until 530. He, mm -hmm. he influenced me in this sense that uh, I think that if you want to get a lot of work done, you need to close your door sometimes. <laughs> and he was a uh, very uh, thoughtful person. I loved it when, uh, after Walter died, Craig Hawkins uh, did the Bible Answer Man program, did a really fine job. Uh, Craig is another really first-rate Christian thinker. Uh, after Craig left, there was a panel. Uh, and the panel would be Ron Rhodes, Robert Bowman, another friend of mine who is written extensively in apologetics, particularly counter-cult apologetics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, etc. But Ron would be another panelist. And I, I like that, Joe, because uh, if I didn't know something, probably Ron and Rob would. And we could also we could also express some differences. And one of the differences was eschatological issues. So those are two very good books. You should read Robert Sosi. You should read Ron Rhodes. It can be very helpful. Okay, postmillennialism. Um Unlike the previous two uh, eschatological interpretations of the millennium, postmillennialism asserts that Jesus will return after the millennium. There'll be a long period. That long period may be a thousand years, but Christianity is going to succeed. You know, the Great Commission. Now, now I'm gonna I'm gonna make that as one of the strengths of postmillennialism. If you're a postmillennialist, then the Great Commission really is completed. Uh, the world is influenced and comes under the great influence of Christianity. And then the Lord returns. The, so there is a thousand years of peace, tranquility where the Christian worldview has been successful. Now, while I think that's a strength, 
because uh, we all care deeply about the Great Commission. I think the postmillennialists take it seriously. They say, look, it's not we're partially effective. We're successful by the spirit of God. Um, and yet that probably is also the criticism why many people are not postmillennial. They say, well, uh, this idea of a thousand years of peace and tranquility seems to conflict with a lot of the tribulation ideas that flow out of the book of Revelation and other parts of scripture. Uh, but this is an important viewpoint. Uh, it's been held by differing Christians. Some of the great Christians were either amill or post-mill. You do have two varieties. You have more of a Puritan view and more of a theonomic view. I'll come back to that when I uh, give some uh, recommendations. Uh, now, going a little bit further, um, there will be a, a brief period of apostasy and rebellion uh, that takes place near the end of the, the millennium, but ultimately Christ is uh, the king and uh, conquers. And so these ideas of post-mill and pre-mill are very different. Uh, reading the same scriptures, thinking about them, they come to very different points of view. The classical Puritan variety emphasizes the optimistic nature of redemption history, whereas the theonomic variety emphasizes the theocratic. The idea there is the Old Testament civil law is applied to the nations. Hmm. One of my friends, and I considered it a great honor, is I knew Greg Bonson. Uh, Greg was a Reformed Christian, an advocate of uh, presuppositional apologetics, was a personal student of Cornelius Van Til. Uh, I was told that uh, when Cornelius Van Til at uh, uh, Princeton and then at Westminster was asked, well, who, would, who should be your replacement? He said, Greg Bonson. And Greg had a lot of debates. I remember listening to his great debate with Gordon Stein, who was an atheist, that was held at uh, the University of California, Irvine, in the, the mid-80s, I think. I did that debate a couple years later. I was one of the debaters that, that engaged an atheist um, uh, there in 1990. But the idea of a theonomic, now again, the old and the new, the theonomic, that there is God's law. And the theonomic school would say the civil law is then applied to the nations. So you have two kind of postmillennial views that, that move a little bit in two different directions uh, in that context. Now, what do I think is the support? Well, um, I think that it is powerful to say that uh, postmillennialists believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the church will uh, be successful in carrying out the Great Commission. Uh, and they make that point very boldly. They, uh, they like to critique the idea that in the premillennial and amillennial camp, the, uh, the Great Commission is only partially fulfilled. The postmillennialists say, look, this, uh, this is God's world. This is Christ's kingdom. He is successful 
And so through God's spirit, the world is dominated by Christianity. The world is Christianized. There will be a long period of, of peace. And then at the end of that period, uh, the Lord will come. Um, I think that's an important one. And the reason I emphasize it, and one of the reasons I try to bring up the post-mill and ah-mill is I think that evangelicalism has been influenced largely by premillennialism. I want our evangelical friends to recognize these postmillennial distinctives and amillennial distinctives. Mm. Yeah, Joe, Ken, question, uh, question. Do you suppose that a point uh, in favor of the postmillennial view would be someone who says, if you take a look at um, the availability of the scriptures globally now, um, I forget the organization that, that uh, maybe it's uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, I think the last time I read an article by their organization, it, it gives like an update of the languages in which the Bible is now available to people groups or parts of the Bible in, in groups of languages. And it's, it's at an all-time high and, and only getting better. Could, could the post-millennials cite that as well as trends globally? That is, the gospel seems to be penetrating and it's, it's effective in places that we don't, we're not aware of unless we read about it, like uh, Africa and parts of Asia, um, even the Middle East. We're here in America and, and the West, and we tend to think of a decline, but maybe there's not a decline going on. What do you think? Oh, I'm really happy you brought that up because uh, the the missiologists I've read um, say that the global South, Christianity is booming. So you think about the global North, the global South. In the global South, in Africa, in parts of Asia, which have typically been areas of the world that have been influenced less by Christianity, are growing rapidly. I know uh, attending an Anglican church, Anglicanism is growing in the global South uh, even at a greater rate than the Catholic or Orthodox traditions. Um, now, part of that is the Anglican church, the Church of England, uh, uh, the country of England colonized uh, a lot of those areas. But yeah, they're, they're African Christianity is growing significantly. Uh, there are people who report from China that the churches in China are growing uh, remarkably fast. Some predict that by 2050 or maybe somewhat later, uh, China will have the largest Christian population. Now, China and Christianity is a very complicated idea. Even China, understanding Chinese politics and economics is a challenge. It's a communism, and yet there is a, a, a certain level of capitalism connected with it. Yes, I think you could marshal the case that Christianity is influencing parts of the world that in the past it had limited effect upon. Of course, you could also bring to bear the issue that it appears Christianity is declining in Europe and even in North America. So there's kind of the reason for being positive, but also questions about why the decline in the Western world. I mean, it's important, I think, to realize, Joe, that what we call Western civilization, not too many centuries ago, was just called uh, Christendom. Hmm. 
So there are both of those issues that I think can be brought to bear. Now, the challenge um, for post-mill is, of course, uh, when you read the scriptures, not just the book of Revelation, but you, when you read eschatological passages, uh, I think of 1 Thessalonians and other places, it, it sure seems like there's a lot of discussion of persecution near the end, uh, that the, the world we, will be under uh, dire distress uh, and things of that nature. So persecution, destruction. Now, one way of thinking about that, however, and, and again, so I, I'm trying to give you the strength and maybe an objection, its weakness, but maybe a response. Some people might hold a preterist view and say, well, maybe the distress, the, the persecution happened under the Neronian persecution, the destruction of the Jewish temple. So it doesn't all have to land near the end. But I think for a lot of amillennial and premillennial, they say, yeah, I think I'd say that. I think I would tell you, I'd like to be a postmillennialist. I'd like to see the church dominate the world. And by dominate, I mean bring it into its will of God um, and to see, to see the Great Commission completed. The question, though, is there, there is a lot of eschatological elements that seem very negative. Uh, but the postmillennialists certainly have not given up on that. I want to give you two uh, recommended books. Uh, the first one is, uh, again, reflecting more of the Puritan optimistic perspective. It's entitled Christ's Victorious Kingdom, subtitle Postmillennialism Reconsidered. Again, that title, Christ Victorious Kingdom, by one of my favorite theologians, a Presbyterian theologian who's taught for many years at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, John Jefferson Davis. That is a book that I read and I thought, whoa, uh, there's there's more to postmillennialism than I thought. Now, uh, from a theonomic view, I'm going to recommend uh, Kenneth Gentry's book, um, uh, He Shall Have Dominion. He Shall Have Dominion and... Um, that is a very popular text for those who have more of a theonomic orientation. So two books, and again, part of our uh, previous programs was study the field, read, mm -hmm. read these. Um, you know, you might be a premillennialist, you think how in the world could anybody believe in postmillennialism? Uh, but once you read them, it's like, oh, okay. Um, these are very thoughtful, well-trained, Christian theologians who love God. So you want to you want to look at those. Okay, now we've arrived at uh, another perspective. We've looked at two types of pre-mill, uh, looked at post-mill and identified two uh, perspectives. Now I want to look at the amillennial position. I think it's fair to say probably uh, for most of Christian history, uh, Christians have been amillennial. Um, again, there are reports that early there was a premillennialism, but most of the time I think it was all mill, and at sometimes it was post-mill. And with some of the great Christian thinkers, it's hard to know whether they were all mill or post-mill. Uh, 
but this view says, and it's it's the it's the most different perspective. There's no literal thousand year reign. Rather, the book of Revelation 20 is to be understood symbolically as a reference to Christ's reign during his church period. So he reigns through those who have died and gone to be with him, and he reigns in his church in the here and the now. Uh, so uh, this idea would again be that before Christ's second coming, there will be a period of, of rebellion, uh, but Christ will come in his glory, and this amillennial view would see the second coming and everything that comes after it, resurrection, judgment, new creation, eternal state, that's all consummation. The church period of uh, that would involve uh, the fall and redemption has closed, and this would be the, con the consummation. So a symbolic uh, reference to this, the church age between Christ's first and second coming. Um, now, uh, I think it's important to realize that Christ's reign in the amillennial view uh, would be by some saints who have gone to be with the Lord. Our, our friend and colleague, Dave Rogstad has gone to be with the Lord, and uh, Christ reigns now with the saints in heaven, in, in the presence of the Lord. Uh, there's some would distinguish between the intermediate state in heaven, so I make that point. Uh, but it could also be through Christ's kingdom now. And there's a two-kingdom idea here that uh, in, in one sense, uh, there is Christ's eternal kingdom, and that happens now and will happen in the future. It's happened in the past. And there is also a civil kingdom uh, where God uses the institutions and the nations of human beings. So you have these ideas of how we can, how can I be an American, but yet be a Christian? How can I be a, uh, you know, an Anglican and part of the Anglican Church, but also respect the United Kingdom. Uh, those issues uh, are brought to bear. Uh, the amillennial view would also agree with the premillennialist view that the rapture and the second coming are the same. The church is caught up and then usher in the Lord. It is post-tribulation, after the tribulation, no secret rapture, uh, no, no pre tribulation rapture, to use uh, the language of the dispensational perspective. Support. Well, I would say along with being the eschatological view held by most of historic Christianity's greatest theologians, uh, I think you could put Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, and Calvin in the amillennial camp. Now, that's an appeal to authority. I don't think there's anything wrong with appealing to authority. Uh, I like their company. Uh, those are some of the great Christian thinkers ever, and I've, I'd be honored to, to hold that view. But I think it's also the application that this is a view that's held sway for a very, very long time. Uh, so that would be uh, a, a strength. I think another strength is it's the simplest view. Um you know, we talk about uh, Occam's razor. Uh, I think there is 
even hermeneutically in terms of interpretation, the most succinct, the most simple interpretation could be the, the best. You don't have uh, another extension of redemption followed by a thousand year reign. Now, how about a challenge? Well, uh, the biggest obstacle I think to a uh, amillennial view is making the case that Revelation 20 can be interpreted satisfactorily in a symbolic or a spiritual sense rather than a literal sense. Uh, so again, there's going to be some pushback there. Uh, the dispensational premillennialists are going to say the reference to the millennium in Revelation 20 isn't the only reference, but the Amil are going to push back and say, well, no, we think it is. We think we think this is the principal teaching of the millennium, and we want to be cautious about building too much on a brief reference. Again, uh, dispensational historic uh, dispensational premillennialism uh, would push back on that. Two books. Um, uh, one of the theologians who's had a lot of influence on me is Anthony Hukema, H O E K E M A, taught at uh, Calvin Seminary for many years. I quote him. And many of my books, uh, I love his theological thinking. I'll tell you a quick story about Anthony Hukuma, Tony Hukuma, as he was known. Um, he was, uh, Anthony Hukuma was one of the early uh, builders of countercult apologetics, Joe, with mm -hmm. Walter Martin. I would say Martin and Hukuma are two of the, the most influential people. Uh, the Kingdom of the Cults was written by my old boss, uh, Walter Martin. The Four Major Cults was written by Anthony Hukuma. And um, one of the differences is when Walter came out and said the Adventist church is not a cult. Well, Hukuma disagreed. Uh, so the Four Major Cults would include Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Christian Science with Mary Baker Eddy, not scientists who happen to be Christians, but the religious mystical view of Christian science and Seventh-day Adventism. Here's the story. I talked to Anthony Hukuma's son, and I wrote him an email, and I said, I, uh, I've i written an article about your dad, uh, and I talked about uh, how much Hukuma influenced me and things like that. And he said, and I shared this in the article, that um, the uh, there was a Seventh-day Adventist theologian uh, who was asked by students, I think this was probably at Andrews University. Andrews University is the seminary of the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in America. It's in Michigan. Hukum, of course, taught at Grand Rapids, another major Michigan city. The Adventist theologian said, uh, whenever people ask us, well, how do you how, how does the Seventh-day Adventist deal with eschatology? They say, go read Anthony Hukuma's book. He gets it right. Now, what I love about that, Joe, is this. Here's a guy who's critiquing the Adventist view, but he's so careful and accurate. The Adventists say, well, we don't agree with him, but he get it right. Hmm. I wish somebody would say that about me. That would be a real compliment. Mm -hmm. Well, his book, Anthony Hukuma, The Bible in the Future, and then, of course, another very popular amillennial perspective and 
This is uh, Dr. Kim Rittebogger. He was the pastor at Christ Reformed Church. I taught there for 19 years. Uh, amillennialism, uh, a case for amillennialism. And that's a, that's a popular text. So those are two, I think, very uh, good books. And I want to emphasize again, Joe, how important it is, I think, to read the field. Now, if these are too many books, and I'm not sure anybody could ever say there's too many books, but there are also books out there of four views. And um, sometimes those are very helpful books. So under one cover, I got mm -hmm. the two premillennial and the post and the amillennial, just like there are other issues where Christians disagree about baptism or the Lord's Supper. So you can purchase books that kind of give you uh, an, an overview. Uh, read the field, read the best people. And I think you'll come away. I think many people will come away with what I came with. I was initially a premillennialist. Uh, I was influenced by Walter Martin. He had a big influence on a good bit of my theology. Uh, then I went to take my undergraduate degree at Concordia and they were all millennials. So I had to read a lot about all millennialism. Then I went to Talbot School of Theology, and I had Professor Sosi, who was well-known as a dispensational premillennialist. And uh, then I met Greg Bonson, who exposed me to postmillennialism, and I came to the conclusion, wow, maybe we should be, maybe we should be more tentative, because differing, very thoughtful people on all sides of these issues differ. It is a challenging area. And even in church history, there have been differences. So um, I think this is a very important area to study. And, and I'll tell you my own view. I, I don't say this in my book, but I'll share it with our listeners. I lean toward the amillennial view. Um, now, could I be wrong? Could there be a premillennial perspective? Yeah. I'd like to be postmillennial, but I'm not there yet uh, <laughs> if I ever make it there. But again, these are principles that I've tried to apply. And let me let me conclude my discussion of premill, postmill, and all mill again with a quote from another theologian that's influenced me quite a bit. Um, I think, Joe, my most successful book, if if you measure it in terms of probably sales and influence, is my book, Without a Doubt. And I'm thrilled to say it's it's not only been translated into the Indonesian language, but it's recently been translated into Urdu, which is the national language of Pakistan and which is spoken in uh, parts of India. Fuzrana's dad spoke Urdu, for example. Fuzz's, Fuzrana's dad was a Indian physicist and a Muslim and spoke Urdu. Well, this is Bruce Milne. And if you read Bruce Milne's book, you'll see his influence on my writing of Without a Doubt. This is what Milne wrote. Again, he was an Anglican theologian. Uh, I, th I think he may still be living. He says, the center of the Christian hope is Christ himself in his glorious appearing. Division of opinion on the millennium ought never to be permitted to divide those united in their expectation of and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And I think that's right. I want to encourage people to hold their views with integrity, 
but also recognize the importance of unity and what Paul says um, can understand all mysteries. You could have all knowledge, but if you're not loving, it's empty. So that's just a, we did, we took four programs, but it's still just to, to whet your appetite of these issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great stuff and a great note to end on that quote there and your comments. Uh, this has been very helpful, Ken. Uh, thank you. I want to bring up, uh, uh, emphasize your book as well, Christian Endgame. You can go to the Reasons to Believe website in store and shop, and you'll find it there, uh, the basis for this series. But I've got a, gotten a lot out of it, Ken, and I sure hope our listeners have as well. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Let us know what you think. Uh, you have a comment or question based on this series or anything else, we'll be glad to consider that and read it here on uh, the podcast. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter. That's at RTB underscore case samples. Be sure to get clear thinking sent to your device. If you're not subscribing already, subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.